Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello dudes, and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the totally tubular, globe-spanning podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, amped up about my dank new PC in Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, finally stepping into the present, upgrading my 2012 laptop in Melbourne, Australia. (laughs) We focus on sci-fi, fantasy and horror for the most part because we love being chased by street gangs and vampires in a neon-lit urban industrial hellscape. We think that's a great night out. Ah, that sounds like heaven compared to what's going on in the world right now. (laughs) Well, indeed, we have been shut indoors for a long time. How are you, Dan? Good, good, good. And what's this about a dank PC? Yeah. (laughs) So I've gotten to the stage where because I've been locked indoors for so long, I saw on the news somebody point out that we've actually been in lockdown in the UK for more than half of the year now at this point. Right. So (laughs) that's pretty amazing. Lots of people are doing home improvements and starting up stupid projects. And I got addicted to the idea of this new software that uses artificial intelligence to enlarge images and enlarge videos. Uh So I bought myself this software, which requires like an NVIDIA graphics card or something so i bought myself a gaming pc purely so that i can run oh wow (laughs) (laughs) movies and tv series that are only available on dvd through this software and i can turn it into brand spanking new hd transfers Wow, with AI. With AI. It's totally (laughs) unnecessary, a complete waste of my time and money, but I just don't care. It's something to do. (laughs) Wow, that is very impressive. (laughs) (laughs) So guys out there, if you can think of any director's cuts of great horror movies or sci-fi movies or anything like that that's only available on DVD, let me know because I'll buy it and turn it into HD for no reason. Okay. <laughs> but does it look good? Does it, is it convincing? It is, yeah. It's pretty amazing, especially on human faces. Like if it sees on a man, if it sees sort of like a certain type of blurring on his cheeks, it knows, oh, that's supposed to be stubble. And it replaces it with stubble. And it's, it's wow. I don't know how it does it. It's really cool. Oh, it's wow. very clever. Okay. It's tragic. It's keeping me from going insane, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Let me have this. <laughs> You've upgraded your laptop as well. Yes. Meanwhile, over in Australia, <laughs> I have... <laughs> well, I mean, it's exactly the same laptop, but I, I've taken out the, the old hard drive and put in a solid state drive, and now it just mm. it sings and it works, <laughs> and I updated my operating system from Lion... Uh, oh my god! <laughs> which is wow, like eight years old. Um, yeah, I was caught between uh, a rock and hard place because my my Pro Tools version was not compatible with the new operating systems, and it was yeah. Anyway, long story short, I am in the present. I know. So I'm actually looking at you through your computer for the first time for this podcast because before. I've always been looking at you through your phone mm-hmm. and perilously close to falling off whatever it is that you had me propped on yes. and ending up on my back staring up at your ceiling yeah. <laughs> at any point during our live chat. Which yeah. So I've leveled up from that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's brilliant. Well, welcome to 2020. (laughs) It's looking fine so far in the computer world. Let's not talk about anything else. (laughs) Oh, my. Speaking of talking about something else, uh, anything in the mailbag, Conrad? (laughs) Yes, of course, we've heard from Serge at Cold Crash Pictures. 
Hello, Serge. Hey, Serge. Who rendered his opinion on The Relic, which we did with Horror Queers in our last episode. And he said, I hate the term guilty pleasure, but I'll admit it was invented for films like The Relic. Cathoga's ability to move undetected through the museum strains credulity, but the film's got this great mix of taking itself very seriously while also refusing to not have a good time. <laughs> right. I think it's true. Yeah, it's a very good way of summing it up again. We just rely on Serge to sum it all up. I don't really know why we do this podcast. We should just ask Serge for a good paragraph. Yeah, he he should just write the podcast for us and we'll just read it out. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and then call it a day. Also, I put up a meme of Penelope Ann Miller running without her high heels against Bryce Dallas Howard in Jurassic World, mm-hmm. running with her high heels and said, ladies, what's the most feminist empowering thing to do in this situation? And KylieCat.S replied to me on Instagram and said, fuck the shoes and get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, yes, I think Kylie is quite right. <laughs> I guess it's time for us to uh, reveal the film that we're doing today. What are we doing, Conrad? Let me just wander over to the oubliette. Oh, seems it's turned into a car door. Okay, strange. Yeah, now I'm in a car. Oh, my goodness. It's spinning and spinning. <laughs> oh, no. Feeling <laughs> a bit motion sick. Oh, thank goodness. Oh, look, there's a movie in the glove box. Okay. Hey, who wrinkled my clothes? Okay. Gosh, that was strange. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with that oubliette. So, the movie I have with me today after that extraordinary experience is Vamp, a 1986 American comedy horror film directed by Richard Wenk, co-written by Wenk and the producer Donald P. Borchers and starring Chris Makepeace, Sandy Barron, Robert Russler, Dee Dee Pfeiffer, Geddy Watanabe and Grace Jones. Ooh. (laughs) So what's this movie about? Well, it's about two college kids, the cautious Keith and fast-talking AJ, who have to secure the services of a stripper for their fraternity initiation and, with the help of the unpopular rich idiot Duncan, drive to a shady part of the big city to find one. They wind up in the After Dark Club, where Queen of the Night Katrina bewitches them with her unbridled dance routine. There's just one small problem. She's a vampire. One over-enthusiastic hickey later, Keith is on the run with a waitress called Amaretto, or possibly Alison, who claims she knows him, trying to avoid his vampirized best friend, killer elevators and psychotic albinos. <laughs> Will he make it out of the big city alive? Find out. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a thrill ride. I can feel it. <laughs> it will be. And we have a special guest to join us, an expert in vampires nonetheless. I can't wait. Our guest today is uniquely suited to guiding us through the world of vamp, having spent her childhood as the founding member of her very own vampire hunting club. She grew up to become the managing editor of Daily Dead, a one-stop shop for all your horror entertainment news and reviews, as well as the host of its podcast incarnation, Corpse Club. We are very excited to welcome Heather Wixon. Yay! Yay. Thank you guys so much. That's like the nicest introduction I think I've ever received. Thank you. Thank you so very much. <laughs> You're very welcome. We were very excited to speak with you. This was wonderful. And when you asked me to pick a movie and when you had mentioned, you know, you hadn't seen Vamp in a while, I was like, oh, we're going to have so much fun. It's one of my favorite movies to either introduce people to or reintroduce people to, because sometimes people saw this one a little too young, you know, because there's a lot of vampire movies during the 80s. Mm. So when people talk about vampire movies, most of the time the conversation veers towards Fright Night or Lost Boys 
is, mm. you know, Near Dark is really taken a, a hold as well. Um, but Vamp gets overlooked a lot. So whenever I can champion this one, I'm always happy to do so. Yeah, I'd never actually seen this one. Had you, Dan? No, no, I never. This is first time viewing for me. Oh, yeah. wow. That's incredible. Yeah, so we are Vamp virgins here. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I feel like I've done my job now. Hopefully you both enjoyed it or I'll feel really bad as this conversation goes on. <laughs> <laughs> well, we shall see. That's the fun of the podcast. Yes. So tell us a little bit about your history with Vamp. How did you first come across it? Honestly, I just rented it at the video store. It was the artwork that immediately hooked me. Yeah. The only thing I knew about it was that Chris Makepeace was in it. And being a sort of a child of the 80s, I was a very big fan of Meatballs and my bodyguard. Mm. So I loved Chris Makepeace. So I just knew that there was Chris Makepeace in a vampire movie. I had to see it. And I'm really mm -hmm. glad. I, I was raised by a single mom who kind of was pretty freewheeling in terms of the things I was allowed to see. There's only two movies I couldn't see. Mm. I wasn't allowed to see The Exorcist or Texas Chainsaw Massacre when I was little. But everything else was kind of just on the table. And she let me rent this. And thank God she wasn't in the room because I think once we got to the strip club, she would have turned it off <laughs> and been like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, but to me, it's it's interesting because it is sort of this sort of naughty horror comedy, but it doesn't feel really salacious. Like it's you don't get the same feeling from watching this like that you do is like, say, watching Maniac, for example. Mm. You know, there's, it's a lightheartedness to this, I think, that sort of balances out the skeeziness, I guess, of, <laughs> of the strip club locale. And I I was immediately hooked. Um, I immediately fell in love with Grace Jones. And I think I probably, for like the next few years, until I eventually bought it on VHS, I think I probably rented this at least once a month. Wow. Because uh, I just loved it. <laughs> so lots of rental fees for Vamp over the years. And I would take it and show all my friends and pray that their parents didn't walk in either. <laughs> but yeah, it was the artwork. And I think for me, that's sort of the one thing that I really miss about being a kid and going to the video store. is like you could go in there and discover any kind of movie if the artwork hooked you. Yeah, that's very true. I did find this movie quite different to all the other sort of vampire movies that you mentioned in the fact that it was black comedy. And I was surprised by how really kooky this movie was and so many deliberately funny scenes or kind of deliberately bad scenes that were just hilarious because they were made the way they were. Like, I, I can just think <laughs> of when they're in the car and they're spinning around, they skid off and it just goes on forever <laughs> and ever as they're spinning around. It's so funny. Yeah, they sort of go in their own modern version of the tornado from The Wizard of Oz and end up in the Land of Oz, but it's this purple and green world in the modern metropolis. And then they meet the Wicked Witch, which is really quite beautiful the way that that turns out. No, it's, it's, and it's interesting too, because I, I think the surrealism to me really, again, was what sort of set it apart for me as a kid, because there's a little bit of surrealism to Lost Boys, but that's only like when they're in sort of the lair and there's sort of this undertone of uneasiness. Nothing felt like damp to me. And I have to really credit that to the director, Richard Wank, who also co-wrote the script with the producer, Donald Borchers. And it's funny that when I was talking about the artwork years ago, I actually did a screening for Vamp. And Donald was talking about the fact that he actually came up with the artwork before they even had a script. Right. Oh. Um, and that's kind of how it worked back then a lot of the times, which is interesting. <laughs> when people sort of talk about Richard Wank, they don't really realize, like, he's a guy who's kind of gone on to do a lot of action movies over the years. Yeah. Like Jack Reacher and The Equalizer and the, the Expendables sequels and stuff like that. And it's really interesting to sort of see his roots here because there's some little action-y moments to it. But yeah, I think for me, like, it's just one of those, like, as soon as you step into that world, the whole thing changes. The lighting, the mood, everything is different. Um, and I think for me, that's what, like, really makes it stand out. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, surreal is very uh, accurate to describe this movie. I, I actually found it quite David Lynchy in parts as well, especially in, in the strip club and the strange lighting and a lot of sort of under lighting so everyone just looked very grotesque and unsavory I guess and yeah it just spiraled into this other world that I wasn't expecting. Yeah for sure. Definitely and I think also too um, there's a lot of really good character actors in this movie that really it makes everything feel lived in like you don't for me like one of my sort of my biggest pet peeves with like a movie is when you go into it and you just sort of feel like you're starting with them on like the first day of their lives or something. Mm. 
you get a sense that this world is already very established, that these kids are sort of stumbling into this world as it exists. Like it's not just sort of this new thing. And I think that really comes through with Sandy Barron, who plays uh, Vic, who's sort of the, the MC of the night. Mm. Like, I just love him. Like, cause he just wants to get to Vegas. That's all he wants to do. <laughs> he wants some credibility. He wants some class. And I think these are characters who already exist in this world. And these kids are just trying to figure out, okay, what, where are we? What have we gotten ourselves into? And just trying to sort of get through the night. Yeah. yeah, and I think the two main characters have that lived-in quality as well because they're really at ease with each other and bounce off each other well. And not just in the opening scene where they're delivering that sales patter to the frat boys, which could be something that they've rehearsed, but just when they're at home in the dorm room together and they've got this whole routine where AJ puts an apple on his nightstand and Keith skewers it with a arrow and AJ throws him half of it and he eats it and mm. and when they set out on their road trip and they're singing together you just feel that they've lived with each other for a year or so they're really comfortable in each other's company and they're a pair of friends that I totally buy as friends and that I invest in as a result right from the get-go absolutely and I think I've been very fortunate I've gotten to know Robert Russler pretty well over the last seven or eight years oh wow and he always talks about the fact that this is like one of his favorite roles that he did during that time. Mm. He played a lot of the quote unquote best friends in movies, but this one felt like a real character. And it's true because you just, there's an immediate banter between them, especially in that opening scene, which I don't know if you guys realize, but the voice on the tape recorder before it kind of goes awry is Christopher Plummer. Really? Oh. Wow. <laughs> yes. So I have all sorts of vamp tidbits I'm going to get into. Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> yes. But so immediately you're charmed by these guys and you like these guys. You know, you want them to still be together by the time all of this is over. And I think that's one of the strengths of the movie is that it does take a dramatic turn, but yet it finds a way to still be true to that friendship, mm. but it doesn't come at the expense of the events of the movie, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I agree. I even quite liked Duncan, played by Gide Watanabe. It was almost slightly sort of cliche Asian, but at the same time, it wasn't. Like, he didn't have an Asian accent, but he was kind of the comic relief almost, the guy that just wants to get laid <laughs> and wears, like, a Hawaiian shirt and a cheap suit sort of thing. Um, but I, I thought he was kind of fantastic. Yeah, and it's an improvement on the role that he played in Sixteen Candles, which I think he got a lot of criticism for. He played a character called Long Duck Dong. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, this is two years before, and he had a sort of stereotypical Asian accent, and he was the butt of every joke. Right. And I think he learned from that, and although this character isn't a very positive representation, <laughs> he's still a fairly likeable guy. I mean, obviously, clearly not to anybody at his particular college because nobody spends any time with him unless he pays them, yeah. which is really sad. But he's fun to have along on the ride, even if he is a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, I think that's what I really liked about his performance in this movie is because he wasn't cast as like a stereotypical Asian. He was playing sort of the rich kid, almost like a reaction to like Silver Spoons, like the kid who had everything, but yet still couldn't figure out how to have friends. Mm. That was one of the things that they talked about when they cast him in the role is they wanted to move away from the roles that Getty had done before because he himself had actually felt pretty bad about them. But when you're starting out in, in Hollywood as an Asian actor and John Hughes comes to you for a comedy, how do you turn that down? Because mm, yeah, I am so. somebody who, you know, I'm originally from Chicago, so John Hughes movies are, you know, sort of mm. our, our thing out there. Yeah. But I look at 16 Candles now and I'm really uncomfortable with that movie. There's a lot of problems I have with that movie, mm. but Long Duck Dong is the biggest, I think, for me. <laughs> Isn't it a bit rapey as well? It is. If I remember rightly. Yeah, like there's people having sex with people passed out. You know, you're treating the main character as like a commodity through her underwear. Oh. It's got some issues, you know. <laughs> 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 but it's interesting to think of like the context, but ultimately 
you know, if I'm going to pick a movie to watch with Getty Watanabe, like, I'm going to watch this. Because yeah. I know mm. it's him really getting a chance to perform, to be a character that's, you know, despite his sort of lack of social graces, he's still fully fleshed out. Again, he's still somebody you end up liking. And you kind of feel bad for him, too. Yeah. Because he just wants friends. And we are all in that same boat. Mm. Yeah. It was just really refreshing to see an Asian character not break out and do, like, kung fu moves. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty much the 80s and 90s for Asians. <laughs> <laughs> I do appreciate appreciate his appreciation for having like cold cut trays around his room and stuff. Yes. <laughs> I would be friends with that kid because like I like a good fresh sandwich every now and again, especially in college when you're eating garbage food. Like, yeah. you know. While we're on the subject of representation, how do we feel about the character played by Dee Dee Pfeiffer, Amaretto or Allison? She's blonde and she does spend the whole movie so thrilled to see her childhood crush again, Mm. Keith, that she doesn't really notice or engage with the life-threatening supernatural events (laughs) that are happening all around her. You could say that she's the stereotypical dumb blonde, but still there is something very resourceful and likeable about her. Yeah, she's very charming and adorable and very sweet. And I think she represents the opposite of what the After Dark Club is. Mm. She just wants to be there to explain express herself you know that's her thing and if you even watch the scene where she goes up and dances on stage like she's so not equipped to be a stripper (laughs) the other girls up there doing like these big routines and like she's just kind of awkwardly dancing back and forth Mm. it's so wonderfully charming (laughs) the way that she plays it and the whole thing with her strap the whole time so i never saw her as like quote unquote the dumb blonde I always sort of saw her as just sort of like she represents the good in the world in the midst of all this bad stuff. Mm. Her enthusiasm towards Keith is really infectious. Mm. I remember the first time seeing him, I'm like, well, how does he not remember her? Yeah. Duncan is like, I would remember her. <laughs> you know, especially towards the end when her and Keith are sort of called into action. She ultimately sort of proves her savvy getting into the store to get like the things that they need to fight the vampires and things like that in a way that Keith himself wasn't really prepared to do. Yeah, Mm. that's true. There were a few things plot-wise with her that I was... I mean, they were really pushing for you to think she was a vampire. Yeah. She didn't have a reflection, is that right? But she was fine. Yeah. Yeah, I thought there was going to be another twist, but there wasn't. Yeah, I'm kind of glad that they didn't go that route because I think that would have just been sort of a downer for that story because he already lost his best friend's now a vampire. Like, to have the girl that, you know, he potentially is going to run off into the sunset with turn into a vampire too. You know, I think that would have been just too heavy for the tone of this movie. Um, But I I do like sort of like the fake outs because, you know, she's been working at the club. It makes sense that, you know, maybe we think she's that clueless, but she isn't. Mm. I always thought the mirror scene, I know what you're talking talking about the angle is just weird so it's just (laughs) off enough where we just don't see her but i love the the moment at the end when he's like oh could you come here and he like puts the sun in her face and she's like you think that's funny it's a nice (laughs) little note to end on i think yeah yeah sure so on the opposite end of the scale i guess no conversation about vamp would be complete without an in-depth discussion of the phenomenon that is grace jones Mm. she's primarily remembered in the uk for slapping around a tv chat show host in 1980 Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, Russell Harty, his name was. But if you watch it again, it's it's fairly tame. She just sort of pats him. And I think it's because he keeps turning his back on her. He's seated in between two guests and he keeps turning to the other guest and ignoring her. Oh. And she didn't like that. Because if there's one thing you do not do... It's ignore Grace Jones. No, no, you do not. <laughs> no. But she does have quite a reputation uh, for being a very demanding presence. And I suspect working with her on this movie was not very easy either, from what I can tell. I have lots of Grace Jones stories. Yes. <laughs> she had her own entourage on this movie, which was all these like very unique art people. Um, Keith Herring actually did her body paint. Oh. So that was pretty cool. She actually brought him in. And she never got clearance from anybody to do any of these things she just did them because she was grace she basically had her own set dresser dress her dressing room area one day she invited timothy leary to come to sets oh okay a few days andy warhol was there wow on a new world pictures movie which is like a tiny little movie at the time and there's andy warhol hanging out in downtown la of all places (laughs) my favorite thing about the movie is her dance sequence which obviously is sort of the show-stopping moment Mm. and what's great about that scene is that 
that nobody knew what she was going to do. Wow. Richard gave her a little bit of direction in terms of where she needed to face the cameras, and that was it. So when she comes out there and does that dance and everybody looks like completely stunned, that's 100% authentic because nobody knew what Grace was going to do, and they only ever did one take of it. Wow. Wow. (laughs) It is incredible. It's still incredible now. Mm. When I watched it a second time, what I think is particularly notable is the contrast between her performance and the rest of the performances. Right. Mm. Because there are all these kind of thousand-mile stares across the heads of the patrons, not making eye contact with them, and just wearing these ridiculous male fans fantasy outfits like, you know, the construction worker and the S&M bondage lady and this kind of thing. And it's all so skeezy and exploitative. And yet Grace comes out and she is so much more empowered. It's so much more confrontational. She is challenging the men who are looking at her and she is threatening them. And then she goes about extracting her own pleasure from this headless torso (laughs) (laughs) chair that she's writhing over. And it's really quite shocking, powerful performance piece in its own right. It's that very moment where you realize it's Katrina's world and we're all just living in it. (laughs) And it's basically the Katrina show from there on out. Robert Russell was telling me when he did this movie, he was only 19. So to be in the presence of somebody like Grace, who's such a strong personality, you know, she's got a different method for things. Like he was extremely intimidated, but yet they got along really well. Although he did say like during the scene when like she attacks him, she was a lot more voracious than they had rehearsed. So that kind of shocked him and kind of made him, you know, freaked out a little bit because she was just like, going at him and he was like oh my god you know although i'm sure a 19 year old guy was probably okay with grace jones really going at him at the time it's so interesting to me that she did this movie because it wasn't a high profile movie it wasn't a huge budget so it wasn't like she was getting a huge payday for it and you know i when i did the screening you know i asked like richard and donald like what do you think the appeal to her was in to come and do this movie of all movies and they think it was the artistic freedom that they gave her because they just let her come in and do what she wanted to do and so many times in other roles that she had to do she had to play a role very specifically and she just wanted to come in and do her thing and they were like well who are we to say no to that and i'm so glad that they did Because, like, you know, I don't think the movie would be half as, like, almost intoxicating as it is without her presence. No, I agree. What do you think of Grace's choices with the character? Because apparently, originally, the character did have dialogue. Now, I've heard competing claims as to whose decision it was for Katrina to not speak. I've heard people say that they saw her performance in A View to a Kill and Conan the Destroyer and decided that having Grace Jones deliver dialogue was maybe not the smartest move. And I've also heard a version where she says that the words would have just gotten in the way and that she wanted to entirely evoke this creature of the night through the way that she looks and the way that she moves. I find both entirely credible. I'm not sure which is true. I know, Heather, that you're a huge fan of the TV adaptation of Salem's Lot, the very first one. Yes. And that interpretation of Barlow, which of course is very different from the book, he's also mute. How do you feel about Grace's Katrina? Um, I love it. I think what happened was is that when they did the script originally before this, she was on board, Katrina Katrina was supposed to talk. Mm. And I think when they met with Grace, she sort of saw herself as sort of like a modern day Nosferatu, where it was all about movement. And it was just about the way that she would carry herself. And I think they realized like, you know, she's probably onto something there. And I don't think you need her to talk really. Like, I think she grunts twice. (laughs) And if you hear that grunt, you don't want to hear that grunt. Um, It's like when your mom shoots that look at you and you're like, "Uh oh, I'm in trouble. Yeah. (laughs) Or rips out your hat. Yeah. You know, and I think for me, you know, as much as I love villains who talk, I think there's something really powerful about villains who don't talk Mm. and can be just as enthralling to watch on screen. You know, your classic slashers like Freddy, Jason, Michael Myers, Leatherface. Like, I love Freddy. I love his quips. But there's something really haunting about Michael Myers just standing there Mm. and just staring. You know what I mean? Like, there's just something about that. And I think for me, like, knowing that she was using something very classic like Nosferatu as her inspiration For me, that really shows that, one, she didn't just come in to just do a role to do a role. She really wanted to bring something different to the table. And I'm glad that they did. You know, I mean, 
Her ability to deliver dialogue isn't always the greatest or hadn't (laughs) always been the greatest. But I think for her, visuals are enough because she has such a powerful presence. Like when she comes on screen, like you stop. Mm. There's just something about her. Like you can't look away. Mm. I would agree. The words would have probably gotten in the way with her. Yeah. Yeah. Just her presence in terms of her androgyny is so captivating as well. And coupled with the crazy outfits she was wearing, like the wire headdresses and the wire bra thing and the body paint. And um, when she first appears as well with that red wig and the white makeup, and it's just so enthralling to watch her. Not very practical, but very interesting to look at. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I remember hearing a story about how when they were doing the additional dialogue recording in post, that she came in in a very similar metallic outfit. And every time she moved to grunt or yell or whatever, it was jingling and jangling. Oh, no. So apparently when they reported this to her and asked her whether she could stand still, she said, well, no, I can't get into the character and stand still. So she took all of her clothes off. Oh, right. So she did all of the ADR (laughs) naked. (laughs) But that is just so Grace Jones, though, isn't it? That poor ADR guy that was probably working in the booth that day was like, what is happening? (laughs) (laughs) Has that ever happened to you, Dan? (laughs) Uh, Not yet. (laughs) No, okay. (laughs) How do you guys feel about the pace of the movie? Because for me, it's very much a movie of two halves. It kicks off with this wonderful interplay between these three characters. It's really snappy. You really enjoy their company. And then you have this really weird sequence in the bar that opens up a whole new world and changes the tone of the movie somewhat. And then after AJ is out of the picture, or at least temporarily out of the picture, it switches to Alison Stroke Amaretto and Keith running around in the strange netherworld, the um, metropolis at night that they've discovered being attacked by vampires or psychotic albinos Um, and it just seems to alternate between them running away from something Keith testing whether Amaretto is a vampire or not or rescuing her from someone who's taken her hostage and I, I just feel like that portion of the movie drags for me. It doesn't seem as exciting. It sort of loses the momentum that you had in the first half. Mm. I agree. I I think it does sort of lose a little bit of its energy because it almost feels like the way the movie's structured is like once they sort of burn down the after dark, like that should be it. Mm. It just feels like that should be the ending of the movie. As much as I love it, like I would say that's probably the moment where the movie... I wouldn't say overstays its welcome, but it loses a little bit of its focus. Hmm. And I will say, if they hadn't found a way to bring AJ back, I don't know that I probably would have loved it as much because that friendship is really like sort of the heart of this movie. Like as cute as Keith and Allison are, and ultimately in the end, I'm really rooting for Keith and AJ (laughs) because these are just kids who just wanted to get out of their dorm room and have a better life Mm. and ended up getting way more than they bargained for. (laughs) I would have loved to have seen something where like, I don't know how even you'd work a sequel. Like does AJ take night classes? (laughs) You know, how does that quite work? I would actually love to see what their life was like after this movie and them trying to sort of navigate the waters of of AJ being a vampire and Keith, you know, I guess would ultimately be his familiar kind of making sure like he's safe and things like that. To me, that dynamic would have been interesting to explore, but I do agree. I think once, you know, you're sort of in the sewers for the rest of the movie and when Vlad shows up, he's like, you killed my Katrina. And, you know, and it sort of feels like a little bit of the same, Mm. but I think once we get to like that last three minutes, you know, when AJ shows up, Katrina has been defeated and then ultimately, you know, life is going to go on for Keith, AJ and Allison. That's where it sort of picks right back up again. Mm. Yeah. But you had to have that callback to the bow and arrow though. So. Yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, as soon as he picks that up in the beginning, I just thought, aha. <laughs> That's a very useful weapon to be very good at using. <laughs> it's actually a lot harder than it looks. Yeah. Because I remember like I was at summer camp once and they're like, oh, try this. And I was like, it's not an easy thing at all. So I thought that was always kind of an interesting thing that was something he was very skilled in because that wasn't very typical especially during that time 
This movie is, I mean, it's essentially a B-grade movie and there are some quite low-budget effects, but there are some really amazing set pieces as well. Like, I really love the elevator scene and mm. that car collision scene is pretty high voltage. And also when uh, the Duncan character just explodes in the car, that's impressive. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, they make a lot out of 3.3 million, don't they? They really did. Um, and it's interesting, too, because they had Greg Canham doing the special effects on the movie as well Mm. he at this time would have just been coming off of cocoon and it's just interesting because he was a pretty high profile artsy type of special effects guy and that they would go to him and he would agree to do it because i think he also worked a little bit on lost boys because that was with v neil and v and greg were pretty good friends and so i think he came in to help out a little bit there But then ultimately Vamp was like sort of his quote unquote vampire baby of shows. (laughs) But he was a pretty high profile effects guy to get for a project at this level because I can't imagine their budget was really big for effects. And you have to make up a lot of vampires in this movie. Although a lot of them are just sort of fangs in the club. Yeah. You know, but I think in terms of like Grace's different stages and the scene at the end, which also, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned Salem's Lot because it really reminded me of when Barlow melts away. Oh, yeah. um, Which I love. Mm. But yeah, there's some pretty, high-end effects in a movie that you know has a very very low budget in comparison yeah. yes there is one moment in that sequence actually where katrina's skeletal hand gives keith the finger <laughs> yeah i don't know whether it's just the framing on the arrow blu-ray but you can actually see a grip's hands holding the skeletal arm up oh really yeah top right hand corner of the image oh. yeah <laughs> Oh, no. Yeah, I don't know how they would have missed that. I guess the cinematographer was just tired, maybe. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I did notice that years ago. And I was like, oh, that's unfortunate. (laughs) You know, it's not ideal, but it almost sort of has like this like lo-fi charm to it in a way. But I'm glad you sort of mentioned that because I actually kind of don't love that. Mm. Because I don't feel like she's a character that would flip somebody off. Right, no. It's not very classy, is it? No, like it doesn't feel very befitting of her character. It's funny. Mm. But it doesn't feel like Katrina. Um, I feel like she just would have gone. I don't know that she would have flipped anybody off. Yeah, I think it's beneath (laughs) her, isn't it? Yeah, she's better than that. (laughs) (laughs) I did find this movie similar in, I guess, tone and themes as Rocky Horror Picture Show. Did anyone else find that? <laughs> yeah, I could definitely see that. See, I've never seen it. Wait, you've, you've never, never seen, seen What? I haven't. No, this is bad, isn't it? What? How can this happen? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Like, we have to stop right now, and you have to go watch Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> I know. I come out in hives when I see musicals. That's my problem. Okay. When people start singing, yeah, it's not pretty. <laughs> but it's the time warp. I, I mean, I say that as somebody who, who I don't... I I only have one tattoo and it's I actually have the tattoo of the Rocky lips on my shoulder. Oh, wow. um, so, yes, I'm very much a big fan of Rocky Horror. I would definitely agree that there are some similarities to that in this where you, you know, you sort of have these sort of nice characters that end up in this world that they're so ill equipped to deal with. You know, unless they can use a bow and arrow in Keith's case. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I would say that there are some similarities because it also sort of challenges sexual norms, I think, as well. Yes. Especially with Katrina, because, you know, you kind of get a sense that, you know, you mentioned her androgyny Mm. and you just get a sense of like that there's a little bit more to her than her just being a stereotypical, like, quote unquote, sex pot, which is what you would expect for like a a quote unquote stripper character. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I could definitely see that. And I also love the fact that this movie very much uh, influenced From Dusk Till Dawn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a really big influence on, I think it was Robert Kurtzman that originally wrote the script, which then ultimately Robert Rodriguez would go and direct. It's interesting that this movie would influence other movies, but yet it's sort of still this like forgotten gem of a film. Yeah, very much so. And like I said, I didn't see it. I remember seeing the trailer. It must have been on another VHS that I'd rented. And just thinking that nothing about it seemed to be particularly fresh or interesting. It just seemed overly familiar so soon after Fright Night. Mm. I mean, even the opening titles, the V and the M extend into Dagger teeth just like the opening titles of Fright Nights it just feels as though it's like a cash in like the Jim Carrey comedy Once Bitten that came out the year before no I could definitely see that and again I think it's interesting too because Fright Night was a movie that Columbia did that was just sort of under 
they didn't really care about it at that point when they were doing it because there was, I forget what it was, but they were doing at that point some big John Travolta movie. And so they let Tom Holland just go off and make that movie, you know, however he wanted. And he pretty much got free reign of it. And it's, I'm really glad that he did because it did have a huge influence on the genre. Like, I think because nobody was making monster movies at this point, it was, you know, the 80s were very much sort of slashery. So you were seeing like, the human monsters you were seeing, the Freddies, the Michael Myers, the sure. Jasons. And I think Fright Night really ushered in this new era of monster-centric movies, you know, and especially vampires. It's really an interesting turning point. Because of Fright Night, we have Vamp, we've got Monster Squad, we've got Lost Boys. Most monster movies, especially from like 86 to 89, really owe a lot to Fright Night because had they not sort of kicked that door down, I don't think we would have had them. Yes, and certainly more influential than the John Travolta movie, which I've just looked up and it was the searing insight into 80s spandex-wearing fitness culture called Perfect. Yes, that's what it was. <laughs> so, okay. And it did nothing yeah. at the box office. It was a total failure. And Fright Night ended up being like a really big success financially for Columbia. And they were like, oh, wow. Yeah. And a bit of a misstep for Scream Queen Jamie Lee Curtis because she's in there too. Yeah. That was going to be like their big sort of star movie for yeah. the year. Wow. It's amazing that they would think that was a better band. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to Miss Jamie Lee Curtis, of course. Well, no, she can do no wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now it's time for Random Trivia! So Heather, you mentioned that you managed to get to know Robert Russer, AJ, in the movie Vamp quite well. Yes. And that he told you lots of great stories from the making of the movie. I was wondering if you could share one for our Random Trivia segment. One thing Robert mentioned, like he went to the premiere, he brought Brooke Shields as his date, which I thought was fun because um, I love celebrity gossip. <laughs> and I guess that night he really got along well with Andy Warhol that night because Andy was at the premiere as well because he was Grace's guest. Oh, wow. And the next morning, Robert wakes up and his, his phone's ringing in his hotel room and it's Andy Warhol. And Andy's like, I want you to come to my loft because I want to paint you. Oh. <laughs> and Robert was like, uh, and I guess he got weirded out and he declined it. And it was only like a very short time after this movie came out that Andy died. And he said that was one of his biggest regrets is that he didn't go that day and have Andy Warhol paint him. Because imagine, you know, getting to say that you were a piece of art created by Andy Warhol would have been kind of cool. Oh, he could have been one of the last things that Andy Warhol painted. Yeah. Yeah. And that's our trivia. So this film is scored by Jonathan I think it's Elias. I'm not, I've only ever read his name. I've never heard it spoken out loud. <laughs> now, I mostly know him from Children of the Corn, which is another Donald P. Borsch's production. And in that, he used a children's choir to great effect. And he has the same orchestral Sturm and Drang going on in the opening sequence, yeah. which is so beautifully staged and lit as though it's this gothic ceremony that's going to result in a hanging. Mm. And then it all turns out to be <laughs> just... Um, frat boy pledge situation but then it quickly drops this massive orchestral and choral might and just switches into pretty lean 80s synth music with that sort of plucked instrument sort of sound that I'm very familiar with from Mark Isham's score for The Hitcher, that kind of sound. Mm -hmm. And it's constantly moving, constantly full of energy, not necessarily stereotypically full of stingers. Yeah, it's sort of light and refreshing and it's quite interesting the way it sort of balances the two tones in the movie between the horror and the comedy whilst keeping the energy going. No, absolutely. And it's interesting because I didn't realise that he also did some stuff on Watchmen. And I also, when you were talking about him, I realized I used to watch that goofy show on MTV called Celebrity Deathmatch, and he did the music for all of the episodes. No, really? (laughs) Which I was like, wow, that's so different. But yeah, I love it because it stands out in terms of when you're looking at like different music of that time. I mean, synthesizers, you know, really came into the fold because I think of Brad Fidel and Terminator. Mm, And just to see people finding new ways to use that and stand out in very different ways Um, I think is really striking. I mean, and I think synthesizer really sort of complement this world. Mm. I think nowadays, like, I think, especially when people are sort of doing new horror movies, but they're trying to make them retro, it gets a little too synthy for me Mm. sometimes where I'm like, I get it. 
you know, you're trying to evoke these feelings that we all had in the 80s, but I don't know that that necessarily always benefits a film. Yeah. But, you know, when you look at when it was like authentic to the time, it just really fits. Yes, yes. Yeah. I actually didn't find the score to this film very retro sounding. It didn't sound too, I guess, nostalgic. It actually sounded more abrasive in parts, and it kind of did fit this rough-around-the-edges world and surreal and there were moments where I thought is this even an instrument I I, I just sounded like someone had thrown a whole bunch of pots and pans on the ground and put distortion over it it was really fitting but kind of jarring at the same time Mm. like almost punky yeah, and I think Jonathan Elias also worked with Grace Jones on her songs, so yeah. the, the two meshed together quite well. Yeah, yeah. I, the music for her routine was just quite strange mm. to listen to, like a lot of atonal percussive sounds and a lot of very huge reverb as well. And yeah, <laughs> I felt like one of the audience members after that performance, I just like, what did I just watch? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's singing in that track. She did. Yeah. They never released like a proper soundtrack for it. I know the song that she sings at the end, she reworked it into a single for an album like a few years later, oh. but they never properly released the song, like how it was like from Vamp, which is a bummer because I, you know, I would have bought it. <laughs> yeah. It feels ripe for one of these uh, special editions vinyl releases you know it could be uh, purple and green vinyl or something yeah I would have thought when the Arrow Blu-ray came out that they would have done something um, and I just I don't know if it's because of rights with New World Pictures and what they sort of evolved into it's such a mystery but yeah I would have played the heck out of that for sure wow yeah <laughs> but yeah I would kill for like the score the soundtrack anything just give it to me somebody please <laughs> I'm begging I'm begging at this point coming to you live from the movie Oubliette Theatre it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. Unfortunately, we don't have the incomparable Grace Jones, but instead we have the Moobly Awards. It's where we nominate our favourite vampiric parts of the film in a number of flammable categories. Best quote. I have to go with, this is something that we still say in our house and joke about it to this day. And it's the banter with AJ and Keith when they're sitting in the diner and they're like, well, it's dark. But is it after dark? Um, we, we joke about right. that all the time. So that for me would be the most memorable dialogue for this movie. Yeah, for sure. I love the back and forth between those two. It's great. Yes, yes. How about you, Conrad? What's your favourite quote? Uh, my favourite is between the two of them again, and it is uh, when AJ, after he's been vampirized, is tormented when he meets Keith again. And he says, I love you, Keith, but all I see right now is food, and I'm starving. <laughs> <laughs> and Dan? Uh, okay, uh, my favourite quote uh, is from Keith. He's just great. Uh, it's when he, he <laughs> runs into Alison, and she's like saying how like testy he is. And he says, testy? You want to know why I'm testy? I'll tell you why I'm testy. Today I was nearly hung. I get into a fight with a psychotic albino. I met a human pincushion in the bathroom. I ate a cockroach. My best friend disappears. And then I'm nearly assassinated by a runaway elevator. I've had a bad day. And it's <laughs> <laughs> you really have, Keith. You really have. <laughs> it was. <laughs> Best hair or costume? I mean, it has to be Grace when she does her performance. Oh. You know, when you have sort of this very sleek red gown that she wears and it unzips and then reveals the body paint and the metallic bra and get up and everything like that with the wig and everything i mean there's a lot of cool stuff in this movie but i don't think anything comes close to grace during that sequence i mean all of her outfits are amazing um but i think that one in particular really becomes sort of the moment of the movie yes yes it's a performance piece i mean with with her makeup it kind of reminded me a little bit of the clown pennywise from it with the white Mm. and the red and it's scary but enthralling at the same time. Uh, yeah, couldn't look away. Yeah, I think she's hard to beat in this movie in terms <laughs> of her uh, hair and costume. Yes. Most, Most 80s, 80s moment. Gosh, I mean, it is a time capsule of the 80s. I would almost it say is. maybe maybe the lighting. 
Mm, because that's where I was going to go. Yeah, because there's some really fantastic lighting in this movie, which again, you know, you're shooting in sort of downtown LA, which is very dingy, very dark. And the way that they were sort of able to make it feel vibrant in places with like the the pink and the green lights, you know, sort of at odds with each other. Um, yeah, I feel like that sort of neon lighting is what really, when you watch it, you're like, oh, this is the 80s. Like fashion kind of, you know, can come back and forth, you know, so I don't always necessarily say it's fashion that sort of determines an era, but I think maybe the lighting does. It's an amazing visual style. The thing that struck me about it is that I always thought that the pink and green or pink and blue neon highly contrast bichromatic color scheme for signifying the 80s is something that wasn't nearly as prevalent in the 80s as modern day graphic designers that are trying to evoke the 80s would make you believe it is. And then I watch Vamp and go, oh, there it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> and the uh, cinematographer, Elliot Davis, eventually would go on to be the cinematographer for Twilight, another mildly famous oh. vampire movie. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite scene. My gut wants to say, you know, the Katrina performance scene because it really is, it sets the tone. Mm. But I think for me, there is this moment when Vic and Vlad are sitting in the in the back of the, the club and the club is burning down around them. And Vic's having his first drink in like 40 years, he says, or something like that. And they're lamenting sort of what could have been and watching sort of their dreams kind of burn away and there's just something really interesting about that moment because I feel like mm. in any other movie that that wouldn't exist oh. and again I think that was a testament to what Richard and Donald did in this movie in terms of making all these characters feel like fully realized in a way that a lot of 80s horror movies sort of didn't always do they didn't quite take the care that they needed to with secondary characters and to me it's just like you're watching like his memories burn up around him and it's to me it's just it's such a like a sad moment that gives mm -hmm. you so much history and again it just it sort of stands out to me in terms of what the rest of the movie is it sets a really interesting precedent for what we would expect from like quote-unquote horror comedies of that time yeah there, there's yeah. definitely a like a, a warmth to that scene and a, a and you really did feel, even though they were essentially the, the villains of the movie, um, you, you felt bad for them. You felt kind of sad mm. that <laughs> their dreams were going up in flames. What was your favourite scene, Conrad? My favourite scene is actually the cafe scene because, um, yeah, it's just so tightly written and beautifully performed, the interplay between the two main characters. Yeah. And I love the fact that while they're arguing over whether it's after dark yet or not, the owner of the cafe suddenly realises what time it is and starts frantically packing up to shut up shop and changes into a priest's outfit yeah. with an enormously oversized crucifix. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, he turns over the sign on the door of his cafe and if you look closely, it says the opening hours on there and it says, you know, 6am until after dark. Oh, <laughs> <So> right. <laughs> clearly this is his routine that he dresses like a priest with a crucifix and bolts as soon as sunset <laughs> happens. Yeah, I just... I, I was roaring with laughter and really enjoying that whole scene. I thought it was fantastic. What about you, Dan? Uh, my favourite scene, it's, I mean, you can't really go past the Grace Jones performance scene, but also mm. I did really like the elevator action set piece uh, with Keith. It was just unexpected. I didn't expect so much danger in such a short span of time. And it was almost reminiscent of like the Saw movies, like the fact that he was stuck in the elevator and it was moving up and he was about to, I guess, get decapitated or something. And he manages to get free with a, a fire extinguisher. I thought it was, yeah, just really thrilling. Yeah, it's a really good scene. Most cliched horror moment. Gosh, that one's really tough for me because I actually think a lot of the moments tend to come off pretty unexpectedly. In comparison, sure. gosh, I'm totally stumped on this one because I, I mean, maybe it's because I'm so close to it. I don't blame you. I struggled as well because all the things I could think of that are cliches actually have become cliches afterward. So I was thinking about, you know, the, the car being 
hit it from the side as a surprise, but that just became more of a cliche in the digital era when they could pull it off in in one special effects shot, whereas here they do it for real. Mm. Just things like the Asian character, but again, he gently subverts that and makes it more about class. The dumb blonde, but again, she's not really a dumb blonde, I don't think. And and then I just settled on the stripper with a heart of gold, maybe. I could see that, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's tough because it gently undermines all of these cliches if it runs into them. So I think actually the film's more inventive than cliches would suggest. But maybe, Dan, you've got one. Well, uh, I've watched a lot of vampire movies. And one thing I've noticed that modern vampire movies don't really do is vampires don't go anymore um but <laughs> <laughs> they really do in this movie <laughs> they just kind of oh. walk around holding their hands up and going uh it's kind of, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny <laughs> yeah that is true favorite <laughs> special effect i think for me it's it's still going to be katrina's death scene just because oh. again it, it feels like a an homage to salem's lot mm. i love sort of that sort of reverse photography and the things sort of, you know, melting away and, and things like that. Minus the the middle finger part. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think that's for me is like probably the biggest moment for me. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I really liked how her teeth and uh, when she kind of became the vampire that you didn't expect how her teeth were growing. Uh, I know that's quite mm. a sort of overdone effect, and especially in vampire and, and werewolf movies, but I thought it was actually pretty well uh, executed. Yeah, and her eyes rolling up in the back of her head as well. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. startling. Yeah. For me, uh, Heather, you mentioned it. It's actually the moment when the little wayfish girl on the street launches herself <laughs> at snow, the albino, <laughs> and flies through the air because I really wasn't expecting it. And it's very well executed. It's quite shocking. Yeah. 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 It's a moment where you're like, oh, okay. And you're like, oh my God, there's a little girl flying at me. Like, what do you do? It's like, <laughs> you know, it's a vampire still. So you want to like save yourself, but you're still a little girl. So you're like, do I fight her? What do I do? I kick her gently. I'm not sure how to deal with this. It's a great moment. Yeah. <laughs> Best sound effect. I, I think it's just, I, it's not even really a sound effect, but I think just Katrina's grunt is just like, it's, uh, it's the scariest yeah. thing in the entire movie, I think. Um, like to yeah. me, like it's it's so simple, and you're like, oh god, I'm in trouble. <laughs> she's mad now, and she's displeased. You know, we have to make this right with our queen. Yeah, I think it's just something as simple as just her grunt ends up being sort of the the scariest little noise in the, in the entire movie. <laughs> make a great ringtone, I think. Yeah. <laughs> For me, one of my favourites was uh, the forklift truck that's threatening them halfway through the movie. I noticed that when its uh, fork gets into position, it makes the same sound as the doors on the Death Star, which oh, <laughs> oh, okay. is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, go back and watch that again. It sounds like the blast doors from that scene where uh, they're shouting, close the blast doors, close the blast doors. And Han Solo manages to jump through just the last minute. I'm sure oh. it's the same sound. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. I never noticed that. How about you, Dan? I don't know. When I had a favorite sound, I guess the vampires going, uh, <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, I'll go with that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Most funniest scene. It's like when you're a parent and you have to pick amongst your children which one is your favorite. <laughs> Goodness. I don't know. I, I would say for me, it might be the setup at the beginning when they're in the fraternity because ultimately you're starting off thinking you're in one place and then yeah. you're, you're seeing characters who are being hung by their neck and then all of a sudden they're like, wait, no, no, this is wrong. All this is wrong. Like you want, you want us to do this because of what? Um, I think for me, that's to me ends up sort of setting the tone for the movie. Yeah. You know, I struggle because like there's some really good stuff in the diner, obviously with the dark and the after dark. But yeah, I think it's the opening because I think if you didn't have that opening, I don't know if the rest of it would have clicked as well as it did because it sort of sets that 
sets the tone for what's what's going to happen afterwards. Yeah, I, I would agree. And actually, my favorite moment comes in that scene. And it's it's the moment when AJ gets really upset about the fact that his shirt is crumpled yes. and he starts demanding to know who it was crumpled his shirt. And he looks across at the guy who was supposed to be dead, hung in the corner, and he's all pale with this makeup on. <laughs> yeah. And he just looks really nervously at him, breaks character and just goes... Was me. It's <laughs> very funny. Okay, that's our Moobly Awards. Yes. Okay, we are back uh, for the final verdict. Should Vamp be freed from the flaming strip club to go, or should it be stabbed? <laughs> With a metal pipe and exposed to sunlight and shuffled into the depths of the Uberlet to be lost for eternity. Heather, you picked this film. I guess it's one of your favorites, so give us your final thoughts. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess you're probably guessing what my verdict would be on this. Um, yeah, I mean, I, for me, it's, it's a movie that I've, I've spent decades sort of fighting for, and I think, it, you know, it's ultimately... I'm not a huge fan of the word underrated, but I do feel like it's underappreciated. And I think it's a movie that, you know, I even tweeted that I was watching this the other day and a bunch of people like, oh, should I watch that? And I was like, you haven't seen Vamp? So it's always a movie that I will encourage people to see because it may not end up being your favorite vampire movie of the 80s, but I think it has a lot of really great charm. It's really smart without making you feel like it's trying to be smart. It's not trying to one-up the genre whatsoever. It's having fun with the things we expect from the genre, but in a new way. And it's got great performances, the music, Grace Jones. To me, you know, when you talk about the great vampire movies of the 80s, I do think Vamp is a movie that deserves to be in that conversation. Yes, mm. yes, yes, yes. I, I would agree. And it's I wouldn't say this movie was for everyone, though. It's very odd. It's a, it's a strange, surreal joyride into another world. And I love that it doesn't take itself seriously. I love how much comedy is in it. And it's like surprisingly touching at the same time. And mm. also that last scene where where they emerge from the sewer and then the day starts and there are buses and police cars and people going to work and stuff. It's so strange, like going from this really odd world to normality. Like normality seems so strange after all of that. It's and it's really <laughs> really well done. And I I do feel like a lot of other movies of the time, like for some reason I can only think of night movies, uh, <laughs> Night of the Demons, Night of the Creeps, Night of the Comet. They always seem to get a lot more fanfare and vamp. I I'd never heard of vamp. So yes, I think mm-hmm. it, it needs to be watched by more people. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioning the final scene where all of a sudden the morning traffic starts piling across the intersection that the camera is settled on. And that's actually because they could only hold it back for so long. (laughs) (laughs) So as as soon as the main characters had delivered their dialogue and started walking off, that was it. The police gave up and just let the traffic go. So that's why it suddenly starts flying across the shop. Oh, wow. This is really so cool. Yeah, I think Vamp is a perfect example of why we started this podcast, which was we wanted to discover movies that we'd missed, that we had seen but forgotten about, and reevaluate them and hold them up. Never watched it, I'd heard of it, I'd seen the trailer, I didn't think it looked particularly promising. But I had a blast watching this and it felt like a, a really lovely sort of gem, a discovery, like a, a lovely little shiny nugget of 80s with its uh, green and purple gleam on it. And uh, it's probably not one of the best movies of the genre, but it's certainly very deserving of being watched. It's got a great visual style. It's got some memorable performances, some really snappy dialogue. And unlike an awful lot of the sort of John Hughes output and other teen comedies of the era, you don't have to watch it and think, oh dear, you know, uh, this is a bit embarrassing and worrisome now. (laughs) Mm. It doesn't fall into any of those traps, really. And it, it sort of sags in the second, third act, but I still had a blast watching it. And I think if you haven't seen it, you should definitely check it out if you're a fan of the genre. 
So yes. I would vote to let it go too. Excellent. Yes. That's three yeses. Yay. I feel like I've done good in the world with this now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You've you've indoctrinated two more people. <laughs> Wonderful. That's so exciting to me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I guess we are letting Vamp go. Hey, look, no yeah, it'll be free. <laughs> Grace Jones will live to dance another day. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Heather, it's been amazing having you here introducing us to the wonderful world of Vamp. Where can people read more of your insights and hear more from you and follow you and so on? Oh, well, thank you. I this has been an absolute pleasure for me. And to sort of read more of my stuff, you can find me over at dailydead.com. I do a lot of news and reviews and interviews over there. I also am a member of Corpse Club, which is our podcast. You can find us over at corpseclub.com. I I'm also a sometimes contributor at Fangoria, mm. whether it's their magazine or their online articles. And in terms of social media, I only exist on Twitter for some reason. Mm. I left Facebook years ago and I've never been happier. So you can, <laughs> <laughs> so you can just find me over on Twitter. Um, and my handle over there is at the horror chick. <laughs> That's right. a good handle. <laughs> <laughs> And our handle is Movie Oubliette. It's on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, everywhere. And you can also email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. Yes, we love to hear from you. And if you'd like to support us, head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can nominate and vote on films for us to cover in future episodes. And for $5, you gain access to lots of exclusive bonus material, including more of our discussion with Heather today. Yes, all the things you didn't know we talked about. Mm, some of it's juicy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Conrad, so what movie will we be pouring over next time? Well, this time it's going to be a patron's pick. Our patrons on Patreon have been nominating movies for us to cover, so it's time to oh, yes. slap them all on the oubliette roulette. Oubliette roulette. And give it a spin. Oh, does it still work? <laughs> I don't know. Better dust it down. <laughs> okay, here we go. Wah! Ooh. Uh. Ooh. Oh, oh. Oh. What is it? Turbo Kid. Turbo Kid. Oh, I have seen this movie. Oh, I haven't. Yes, that's a 2015 sci-fi fantasy film. And it was nominated for us by our patron, Thomas Kaiser. So thanks for that, Thomas. I'm looking forward to oh, this. thank you. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's very seldom that we watch a film that Conrad has not seen. So, <laughs> mm. <laughs> yay. Oh, I love it every time it happens. Uh, thanks very much, Heather, for joining us and enlightening our minds about Vamp. Yes, we really enjoyed it. Bye, everybody. Thanks for having me. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie Juliet. I'm in the mood for love simply because they're naked.